Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us right now uh, at an off-site campus, especially Columbia. That is where Chris Russo is celebrating his birthday, 40 years. Or it might be 33, I don't know. It's some, somewhere in there. And uh, we're glad for you, Chris. And uh, if you're joining online, we're glad that you are along also. Are you guys, are you guys glad to be here today? Are you? Well, listen, I heard about a guy that, uh, that um, really didn't want to come to church. And so his mom came in, woke him up on Sunday morning, and, and he stayed in bed. And she came in and five minutes later knocked on the door and said, hey, it's time to get, go, to, go to church. Let's get up. And, and uh, five minutes later, he's still in bed. So she comes in, sits down on the side of his bed, says, we've got to go to church. She, she said, what, what is your problem? And he said, well, I just don't want to. He said, I don't feel well. The people aren't nice. Uh, they're not welcoming. I, I don't want to go to church. Why don't you give me three reasons why you think I should come? And she said, okay, I'll do that. She said, number one, it's Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. We go to church on the Lord's Day. Number two, you're 45 years old. <laughs> and number three, you're the pastor of that church. And so let's get up and get going today. <laughs> I hope you don't feel, I don't feel like that. I don't feel bad. I'm just tired. So this is my last service. I decided to save the best to last because this is the best crowd, all right? So here we go. I saw Joanne Ramos here in the house. She spoke at our Chosen Women's Conference last year and just happened to be, I think you guys saw, we're connected in New York City or something and said, oh, hey, let's go to Charleston. I like that. That's great. So we're glad you're here. Just talk amongst yourself. We're fine. Um, listen, uh, as most of you know who are part of Seacoast, that one of our values is planting churches uh, through the ARC and the Association of Related Churches. And this week we celebrate church number 533, brand new church, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Shore Point City Church. So if you know cheeseheads who need Jesus, how many of you know cheeseheads need Jesus and so we've got a church coming uh, for them. And if you know anybody there, just uh, let, let, them, let them know. How many of you remember when you had a tender heart? You remember when you had a tender heart? Um, we love our grandchildren. Yesterday, all weekend is about going and finding out who's playing soccer where. And yesterday... Uh, we went to two soccer games. One of them, Miles, scored six goals, and Addison scored four and one. I'm, I'm just, not that anybody's counting, but, uh, and then we went to a birthday party, and that's kind of how we spent our weekends, and Miles is in church with me today. It's good to see you, Miles, on the front row. And uh, Miles has a tender heart. He was in a conversation with his dad recently about a family friend, Mr. Robbie, who went to be with Jesus a few months ago, and, and they started talking about various things, including heaven, what it's like, and what happens there, and Miles started to tear up a little bit, and Dad said, it's okay to cry, and he said, you know, he said, I'm not crying. My eyes are leaking, and I just don't know why. <laughs> and Dad explained, it's okay to cry, because you've got a tender heart, and that's a good thing. I wonder... When was the last time you were embarrassed by an involuntary leakage from your eyes that you tried to hide? Maybe it had to do with 
a loved one who um, died too soon, or maybe it had to do with the kindness, you were moved by the kindness of a friend, or maybe it was about an injustice that just drove you crazy and you wanted to cry about it. Or maybe your heart was moved by a picture of a kitten on Facebook. (laughs) That might not be a sign of a tender heart. That might be a sign of psychological problems and you need to talk to a counselor. Or maybe you're just allergic to kittens. Maybe that's just like me. Tender heart, tender heart. Then I wonder is, is a tender heart even desirable these days? Is that something that we want? Boy, we don't want it in our politicians, do we? We want Hillary to be tough and Donald Trump, oh my goodness. This is not an endorsement of anybody, okay? But it's just fun, fun television right now, isn't it? Tough, tough, tough. And it, that's not without precedent. In fact, in the Bible, um, after Solomon died, his son Rehoboam uh, became the king and some wily old politicians were giving him some bad advice, okay? They said, here's what you need to do. You need to crack down on people. You need to raise the taxes and you just need to be rough and tough. And the Bible says that because Rehoboam was young and tender-hearted, he could not withstand them, and the, um, the kingdom was divided. And so he needed to be a little bit tougher, and so there's precedent for that. But, we, but tender hearts, we, the Bible says that we're to be tender-hearted. It's tough these days because the world we live in hardens your heart. I mean, the immediacy of bad news hardened your heart. Did you guys see yesterday at a football game, a parade, it was a car wreck, what, three or four people were killed. You thought about it for about, mm, I don't know, 60 seconds. Then you went back to the football because there's so much of that going on. It'll probably happen, something like that will happen this week and it just hardens our hearts to things. It's being constantly disappointed with how things turn out harden your hearts. Sometimes just a pervasive sense of powerlessness hardens your hearts. Maybe tender hearts shouldn't even be the goal, but what's the alternative to a tender heart? A hard heart, right? What's a hard heart? A grumpy old man, grumpy old woman. I had a guy come out and do some work on my house recently. He was just one grump. I mean, he's an old guy. and I mean, his face had kind of calcified around a frown, you know, just, so I thought, well, I'm going to cheer the guy up. So I started talking to him a little bit, nothing. No, I thought, help me, Jesus. I hope that's not me. You know, I hope that's not my future. I don't want to be a grumpy old man. I want to have a tender heart. You know, Ephesians 4 and verse 31 says, get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and harsh words and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Well, what, what would we talk about then? Well, I don't know. Come up with something. It says, instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted. Say it together. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. So we're in a new series. We're starting it today. It'll be about five weeks, and we'll start a Christmas series. We're calling it uh, Poets, Prophets, and Kings, Living and leading in uncertain times. And uh, we're, we're based in it. We went to Israel a few months ago, and 
And uh, we were just thinking about while we were there, we brought a camera crew with us and filmed some things, and we'll show you some of that during the series. But we thought, you know what, regardless of when the time was, especially Old Testament times, or, you know, some of it was 4,000, 5,000 years ago, the times were similar in a lot of ways. And some of the challenges are the same. And so, so we're going to study uh, some poets, prophets, and kings from the Old Testament. And today, I'm going to study a young man named Josiah, young king. He became king at eight years old. Imagine that. Imagine that, eight years old, he's the king of a nation. What happened? Well, there was a coup. His father was killed. Um, Obviously, there were uh, people that were kind of manipulating it behind the scenes. How can an eight-year-old be king? But about the time he reached his 20s, he kind of came into his own. And uh, and, and one day, he uh, he was minding his own business being king, and and the priest uh, was cleaning out the temple, and And in an old closet, he found a copy of a scroll that they hadn't read in decades. And he got it out. It's kind of like this. This isn't a scroll. It's the closest thing you can find. This is like a family Bible. Have you guys seen a family Bible? This is a family Bible. You get it out and (laughs) blow it off a little bit. (laughs) That's some product from Josh Walter's hair. And that's true. It's, It's what it is. So you think I'm joking about that, don't you? You ask him about that later. And so, and, and so, and so the, the king says to the priest, read me the scroll. What does it say? And it was Deuteronomy. Okay, it was Deuteronomy. We know that Deuteronomy talks about the law of God. It talks about how God interacts with his people. And then it comes down to the end of Deuteronomy. And it says, it, it pronounces blessings on those who keep the law. Those who put God number one in their lives. But in chapter 28, it pronounces the curses. And the priest was reading somewhere in chapter 28, maybe it was verse 20, it says this, the Lord shall send upon thee cursing and vexation and rebuke in all that thou settest thine hand unto for to do. You say, what is that? That's the King James Version. That's what the scroll was, it was in King James some of you didn't get that. It was a long time before King James, but if it was in King James, I understand why they sinned, because they couldn't understand it either, okay? But it says, until thou be destroyed and until thou perish quickly because of the wickedness of your doings, whereby thou hast forsaken me. And so basically it says, if you don't follow the law as Israel, you're going to be destroyed and all these curses and and this young king, 28 years old, he rips his robe and his clothes. He says, this, this can't be. We're going to be destroyed. We violate. I've never read this before. I didn't realize it. We violated it all. And he says, is there a prophet that we can consult? Is there a prophet in the house? And so they go and they find a prophetess. Now, some people wouldn't receive from a prophetess because it's a female. But you know, he did, and God spoke very, I don't want to get off on that. That's just a whole other message. <laughs> okay, 2 Kings chapter 22 and verse 18. Did I mention I'm tired? But I, I can say something. All right, so here it goes. 
It says they found a providence. The providence said, but to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord God of Israel, regarding the words of which you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord. When you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you will be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes will not see all the evil which I will bring upon this place. And so they brought word back to the king. Have you bet that he said, good word, <laughs> good word. Basically what, what she said is she said, yeah, the place is gonna be judged, but it's not gonna be on your watch because you are humble, because you have a tender heart. He was saved, not, not just him, but the whole generation that lived during his time. And I read that and I wondered, could it be possible that God is still looking for tender-hearted men and women who have the ability to be tender toward God and can save an entire generation from destruction? I think so. And I think in Josiah, we have a model of what a tender-hearted person looks like. So what I wanna do for the next few minutes, we're gonna take a look at it. And I want you to bring your heart alongside God's word and ask God to tenderize your heart so that he can use you in a powerful way, in the neighborhood, in your family, maybe even in our nation, as a word and as a strong word from God. Tender-hearted people are, first of all, quick to repent when they're wrong. How do you recognize a tender-hearted person? Oh, by the way, there's a verse that I skipped that says, James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. How many of you could use a little bit more favor of God than, than what you have right now, okay? It comes through humility. Humility, so we need to learn these principles. Okay, here we go, here we go. Tender-hearted people are quick to repent when they're wrong. It says, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. A couple of things about repentance. You can either be quick to repent or quick to make excuses, but you can't be both, okay? That, that, that's important, let me tell you why. You can be quick to repent or quick to make excuses, but you can't be both. Let me tell you why that is important. Because in both the Old Testament and the New Testament says that God can forgive a confession of sin. First John 1, 9 says, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and what just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you confess your sin to God, he can forgive your sin. If you give God an excuse, all he can do is listen. And if all he can do is listen, then the consequences can do nothing but follow. If Josiah would have gone to God and said, you know, yeah, we haven't read the word, but you know, it's been a lot of generations. It's not, really not my fault. I didn't know any better. Um, they, hey, God, by the way, the curses in there, there are a lot worse countries than what we are. We're really not that bad. And oh, by the way, my sin, I do sin, really doesn't hurt other people. You know, it's just kind of about me. And so lighten up, you know, all kind of excuses. And God could have listened to the excuses, but he can forgive a confession of sin. So you can do one or the other, but you can't do 
both. Here's the second thing about um, repentance, and that's this. You gotta change your mind before you can change your behavior. You gotta change your mind before you can change your behavior. Um, most of us, when it comes to a point of either excuses or repenting, it's because we've, we've been caught, usually. That's what it is. I, I'd like to say that every time in my life when I've repented, it's because it was just my own accord. But usually it's not that way. Your behavior has, uh, has gotten you in trouble. You've said something, you've done something, you know, what, whatever, and it's gotten you in trouble, and you go, listen, I'm sorry, and I'll never do that again. Anybody ever done that? Just, don't raise your hand. Just kind of look at me like, been there. Happened in the car on the way to church today, as, as a matter of fact. Yeah, we, we go, I'll change that. I want to change my behavior. But here, here, here's the problem. You have to change your mind before you can change your behavior. Because if you just try to change your behavior, sometimes secretly you kind of think the behavior was okay, or you attack the behavior, and it's kind of like a beach ball. You ever taken a beach ball, try to hold it underwater in a pool? Try doing that forever. You can't. You let go and it comes up and it splashes. It's water on everybody. You've got to change your mind about the behavior before you change your behavior. So, so, so I was in a small group this week. Not this week, it was a couple, three weeks ago. I love small groups and I hate small groups. Anybody understand that, relate to that? Yeah, so it's a new small group, and it's a couple small group, and I don't know hardly anybody in the group. I'm not the leader. I don't do well as leaders because I talk too much. And so I sit by my wife, and she goes like this, just be quiet, listen to other people, and, and I do fine. And so in this group, uh, marriage, we don't know each other, so the first thing our leader says to do is bring in a picture of your wedding ceremony. So that was fun, you know, everybody kind of you know, passes them around. We all laugh at the styles. Oh, you had hair then. Oh, you know, all that kind of thing. And it was kind of fun. And then the leader goes like this. The leader says, why don't you tell us one time when you went through a really, really hard time in your marriage? I thought, oh boy, this is what I don't like about small groups right here. <laughs> and so fortunately we were kind of last and it just went around the circle and people were just pouring their heart out. And I'll tell you what happened is it just bonded our group like this. But some of them were like, years ago this happened, it was a tough time. Some of them were just a few weeks ago. And there was a common denominator within all of them, that day at least, is that they said, you know, the church, God changed our marriage and he did it through the church. We are so grateful for the church. And it got my turn and I said, you know, it's interesting to hear everybody is so grateful for the church. Can I tell you, the church nearly killed my marriage. It was several years ago here at Seacoast and um, we had just gone through a particularly hectic time and we had broken through a growth barrier. I don't remember, I think it was around 2,000 people or whatever. And so we were excited about it and we, uh, it, it was at Easter time and I remember coming home late that Sunday night and we're driving into our neighborhood and I can just remember it very vividly, the trees, the weather, everything about it because it was a unique moment. And I was turning to Debbie, it was just her and I in the car and I was celebrating what was going on, and she looked at me when I stopped. And she said, you know what, this is your vision and not my vision. And when she said that, I knew that, Houston, we have a problem. I'm a little slow on the uptake, you know, I'm a, I'm a male, don't hint around at stuff, just tell me where the problems are. I can't figure it out, I just can't. But I knew at that moment there was a problem 
because I could tell it in her tone. This is your vision, not my vision. The first thing I wanted to do was make excuses. She doesn't get it. I mean, planting a church is hard. You know, every church planner I talk to, I always say, if there's anything else you can do, do it, because this is going to be the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. It's hard, it's hard, it's hard. We've been working. It's hard. We're changing the world. How can you say that? But that night and over the next few nights, we had conversations about that. And finally, the truth came out, and she didn't feel cherished. She didn't feel loved. She felt like I had another woman, the bride of Christ, <laughs> that I cared more about than I cared about her. And I wish, I, I, I wish to tell you that it was a quick process for me. But it was, sometimes repentance takes a while. And it was a deep work. When I finally came to my senses, I grieved and grieved, and it was as if I was tearing my clothes as I grieved over the fact that I was failing at the number one responsibility that a husband has, and that's to cherish their wife, to love their wife. I thought about the fact that maybe someday Debbie would stand before God, having gone through a lifetime of not feeling cherished as she should have, and God would give her a higher reward because she stuck with it. I thought, I, I, I can't do that. I, so finally I repented. I saw my ways. And when I did, I had to change my mind before my behavior changed. And now I'm a really good husband and she won't get those rewards when she goes to stand before Jesus. <laughs> there are other areas we're working on right now. Let me ask you this, is there an area where you are wrong and you've been making excuses? Is there? Maybe, maybe it's, you know, everybody's doing it or it's not really a big deal or I'm not really hurting anybody. Really? Really? Because here's the truth. God can forgive a confession of sin. He can only listen to excuses and you're kind of on your own in that. Or maybe is there something that you need to change your mind about? That's li literally what repentance means. It means it's a change of mind. And maybe there's a behavior that's self-destructive, but honestly, you haven't changed your mind about it. You haven't taken long enough to think it through. Or maybe secretly there's something in the behavior that kind of has a payoff. And unless you change your mind, you will never change your behavior. And if it's sin, it's self-destructive. It's self-destructive. So tender-hearted people are quick to repent. Here's the second thing they are. They, they make a strong commitment to do what is right. They make a strong commitment to do what is right. What you see in this young king is, first, he finds out that they haven't read the word of God and that within the word of God there were commands that they were supposed to follow and they haven't and so there's gonna come judgment and he tears his coat and he repents over it and he gets a reprieve from God but he doesn't just stop there. Look what he says. He says, the king stood by the pillar and he made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all of his heart and all of his soul and to carry out the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people entered into the covenant. He said, God, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna make, we're gonna make a commitment 
to you. All these people, they go, yeah, we, we will too, we will too. We're going to make a commitment that we're going to walk in your word. Here's the truth. Your commitments shape your life. You tell me what you're committed to today, and I'll tell you what your life is going to look like in 20 years. Because your commitments shape your life. We become what we're committed to. Now, some people don't commit to anything. They just kind of drift through life. Honestly, my generation kind of like that. We don't want to make a commitment to anything. We want to keep our options open. Invite us to a party. Yeah, we might come unless there's a better option, and so we'll keep our options. I don't do that anymore. I've been saved and cleansed by Jesus. But that's kind of our generation, okay? And it's kind of like this. It's kind of like, how many of you remember when they used to have cafeterias? You remember cafeterias? The absolute worst way to serve food. A cafeteria was like this. They had all the food kind of in a window, and it was all kind of lined up like this, right? Remember that? Remember going to one, K&W or whatever? And, and you've got these lines then where you, 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 you stand in line, kind of like Disney World. That's why I hate Disney World. And, you know, you stand in line, and then when you finally come to the front of the line, you get a tray that's about like this. And you can only put as much food as what will fit on that tray. And so you come to the first, what's the first food group that they offer you? Yeah, that's right, rabbit food. No, I don't want that because I only have this much room on the tray. And then you go to the next thing and you go, I'll bet there's something, I kind of like that, but there's something better I'll bet up here. And so you don't commit to anything and you get to the end of the line. You know what would be sad? Is to come to the end of the line and there was nothing on your tray, or just stuff that other people had rejected. Think about that in life. If you don't make commitments, just keep your options open, what would be a, a disaster to come to the end of your life and you're just not committed to anything? Other people make half-hearted commitments to competing values, which leads to frustration and mediocrity. And then still others make a full commitment to worldly goals, such as becoming wealthy or famous. There's nothing wrong with money or fame. The problem is when you pursue them, oftentimes you end up disappointed and bitter. Every choice, every commitment has eternal consequences. So choose wisely. You are becoming what you are committed to. About a week and a half ago, I, I got to meet one of my heroes. It's awesome when you get to meet a hero. I grew up in Colorado. A lot of you know that. My dad and I, dad sitting on the front row. Dad used to take me to every home game of University of Colorado, the Colorado Buffaloes. And dad, they used to get beat every year by Nebraska and Oklahoma. They could never beat Nebraska. Or, that's why I don't like Nebraska. Still don't to this day. Don't even like traveling through Nebraska. It just <laughs> brings back hurtful memories. And... Uh, and then they got worse and worse where they didn't even beat Kansas and Kansas State and Iowa State and all the teams in what was the Big Eight then. And then they hired a coach named Bill McCartney. And uh, the, in the three years before Bill McCartney came, they won seven games. In the three years after Bill McCartney came, they won seven games. But they stuck with him. They didn't have a quick, quick uh, fire. They stuck with him. And ultimately, McCartney built a uh, a culture, a winning culture. And finally, uh, they beat Notre Dame in the national championship. I think it was 1991. So Colorado became the, the national champions. And at the height of his glory, at the height of his coaching, he resigned from coaching University of Colorado and he started a movement called Promise Keepers. How many of you have ever heard of Promise Keepers? 
Anybody ever been to a Promise Keeper rally? I mean, we used to take our men to Promise Keeper rallies where there'd be, you know, 50,000 people in a stadium. We went to this one called Stand in the Gap that was in Washington, D.C. Had over a million men. We were there, right here, right there. That's where we were. Get a close-up, see if you get a close-up. That's Joshua with his shirt off and Jason with his shirt off and I've got mine on and we're worshiping Jesus. Isn't that true? We were there that day. Some of the Seacoast guys were worshiping Jesus and smoking cigars. I don't know what's up with that. And Coach Bill, who's this intense guy who can motivate anybody, he challenged men to stand on seven promises of a promise keeper. Men, you've got to commit totally to God. You've got to commit to your families. You've got to commit to the word of God. You've got to commit to the local church. You've got to commit to racial reconciliation. And I mean, they preached it and men would make strong commitments to God. So I'm sitting across the table from my hero in a conversation. And I said, Coach Bill, what do we need today? He said, we need godly men. We need men who will make a commitment to God's word. Looking at me like this. I was ready to charge hell with a squirt gun. I mean, that guy, that guy can motivate anybody. And he looks at me and he said, I made a commitment. And he just stopped on that word. You know, you can almost feel the spit. I made a commitment 37 years ago to read the word of God every day and I have never missed a day. And I'm thinking about Tuesday when I missed and then Thursday a week ago and then a whole week, three weeks ago. And Commitment, commitment. People with a tender heart repent quickly and they make strong commitments. What do your commitments say about you? Have you made a strong commitment to follow Christ regardless? Have you? Have you made that kind of commitment? Have you, have you made a strong commitment to your family? Have you made a strong commitment to your marriage? How about to the local church? Some of y'all been visiting Seacoast for six months. How about stop visiting and make a commitment? That we're changing the world here. This is, this is God's will for you to get planted into a local church where you can flourish. How about purity? Have you made a commitment to purity? Tender-hearted people save generations. They're quick to repent. They make strong commitments to do what is right. Let me give you a third one. They're willing to destroy any idols that stand between them and God. What Josiah knew is that he knew he did need to do more than repent and more than just make strong commitments. He needed to tear down idols in high places. In fact, in fact, uh, there's only two kings in the Old Testament who actually did this, him and Hezekiah. They stand out like shining stars. Other kings would make commitments to God, they would repent, but they wouldn't do the hard work to make sure it's a lasting change. Tear down idols in high places. Josiah did. It says the king ordered Hilkiah, the high priest, the priest next in rank, and the doorkeepers to remove from the temple of the Lord all the articles made for Baal and Asherah and all of the starry hosts. 
And he burned them outside Jerusalem, the idols he burned, in the fields of the Kidron Valley and took the ashes to Bethel. And then Josiah brought all the priests from the towns of Judah and desecrated the high places. These are places of worship where they had cultish pagan worship. Sometimes they worshiped the one true God there, but it wasn't in the way that God prescribed. And he tore them down. So, so here's the question. Do we still deal with idols? I mean, is that still a problem today? Just because we don't have a statue of Baal in our backyard doesn't mean that we're free from idols. What are idols? Idols are anything that you look to, run to, or rely on that meet a need that only God can meet. Let me try that again. Idols are anything that you look to, run to, or rely on that meet a need that only God can meet. Money can be an idol. Money in itself isn't a bad thing, but you can make it something that you run to, rely on, meet a need that only God can meet. Then it becomes an idol and it's a problem in your life. People can be that way. Even our children can be that way. In Josiah's time, idols and high places were literal things. They were places where you could go to. In our times, I believe that most idols are in our mind. In fact, I believe that there is a war for your mind because your mind is what controls what your life is gonna be like. Proverbs 4 and I think verse 20 says, um, guard your hearts because out of your heart, which is your mind, flow the wellsprings of life. Every good thing comes out of there. Uh, and and, and if, you, if you spend time thinking on, on things that are evil, then that's gonna direct your mind. If you think, Spend time on on things that are good. That'll direct your mind. Philippians chapter four and verse eight says, whatever things are good and pure and of good report, think on these things. Focus on these things. Because there is a war, you have an enemy who wants to destroy you, who wants to embarrass you, who wants to publicly humiliate you. And he'll do it by attaching your mind to things that aren't true, that aren't good, And then you'll act on those, and an idol will control you. 2 Corinthians gives us how to tear down idols. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 3 says, For for though we live in the world, we do not wage war, and, and believe me, it is a war, as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. You have weapons that if used properly, the Bible, God's Word, the Holy Spirit, it will demolish strongholds. Nothing can stand against you. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Just a couple of thoughts on that and we'll close her down. First, we're to demolish every argument contrary to the knowledge of God. What does that mean? Recently, I was using a piece of software. It was an app on my phone, actually. And something wasn't working right, and so I pushed the button that says help. You know, usually that's got a question mark. When you don't know how something's working, you go to the help desk. And so I pushed help, and it took me to a website, and it said, before you ask your question, why don't you look in the knowledge base about this particular product? In other words, they had a a database with all the knowledge that they know currently about that particular product. In fact, they had like a top 10, like the 10 commandments. They had frequently asked questions, FAQs. You've heard of those, right? And so before you do anything else, go to the FAQs. And sure enough, I went into the FAQs and I found the answer to my issue because it was in the knowledge base. Think of it this way. When you think of this verse, 
There is a knowledge base of God, okay? It's here in this book. Probably not King James. It is King James, but you don't understand that. It's, it's, it's here. It's also in here what God has spoken to you. The experience of others. There's a knowledge base. And what the scripture says is that we are to demolish arguments that set itself up against that knowledge base. Where do those arguments come from? They're all over the place. They are all over the place and they'll attach themselves to your thinking and create idols. The media uh, has a knowledge base that's different than, than God. Music, it can come through politics, through education, books, whatever. In fact, as a parent these days, as we parent our kids, it's a challenging time. What I would suggest is not to just isolate your kids from everything, because at some point they're gonna, they're gonna have to be in the world. What I would do is I would interpret I would interpret the knowledge base as it comes through. You're listening to a song. You're reading a book. There's some part of the education. You're watching a television program. And here comes an argument against the knowledge base of God. You talk to your kids about it. See, we don't let that kind of stuff come in and attach itself because it's not true. It doesn't matter how popular it is. It's not true. Does that make sense? And so, and so what it, it says is that we are to demolish every argument against the knowledge of God. Then there are all kinds of examples. You may have bought into a lie that says people cause pain, therefore I'm gonna isolate myself from others. Let me tell you who buys that lie. You've just gone through a tough divorce. You've had a business partner that betrayed you. You had a friend that lied to you and it hurt you. Maybe stole your boyfriend or girlfriend, whatever it happens to be. And so, and, so, and so you say, you know what? I'm not going to go through that again. I'm just, I'm going to protect my, I'm going to isolate myself so that doesn't happen again. And here's the truth. God's word says you were created for community. Maybe you were a part of a church where you got hurt in a church. You say, I'm not going to do that again. And God's word says, you know what? You're an important part of the body of Christ. He has work for you to do, to change, that, that, that are good works that change people's lives. You may have bought into an argument that says that you are unlovable and unworthy of God's blessing. Guess what? That's not in God's knowledge base. God's knowledge base says that you were purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. That you are a child of the Most High. That every sin that you've ever committed or ever will was nailed to the cross of Jesus. That's the truth. That's the truth. You may have bought into an argument that says sin isn't a big deal, especially the one that you're involved in. That's not in God's knowledge base. God's knowledge base says that all sin is a big deal and it needs to be confessed of so that you can walk in the favor and the blessing of God because otherwise life is gonna be hard for you. So you gotta identify and demolish. And one more and I'm done. That's what a preacher always says, but I, I, this one's so important. It says to demolish every pretense. What is pretense? When you think of pretension, what's that? That's pride, right? Pride comes in a lot of packages. Uh, one aspect of pride is an elevated opinion of yourself. Uh, in, in the words of the great theologian Ann Landers, don't accept your dog's admiration and conclusive, as conclusive evidence that you are wonderful because you ain't, okay? You just aren't. And so you just, you demolish that elevated opinion of yourself. But then some pride comes 
in a package of low opinion of yourself. Do you know that's pride? It's lower than God's opinion. Nobody likes me, everybody hates me, I'm gonna eat a worm. I just feel so alone, so rejected. You know, we laugh about it, but we've all been there. How is feeling like a worm pride? Because if God says you are chosen and filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and you say that you're nothing but a worm, that's pride. You are elevating your opinion above the opinion of Almighty God. Can you see that? And so what we've got to do is we've got to capture every thought that would, that would uh, become a stronghold and an idol that would keep us from God. You need to demolish that. So we're to take captive every thought. Your spiritual life depends on it. Your family and friends depend on it. The next generation is depending on you. So Josiah could have continued in the era, error of previous generations. He could have made excuses why he was too young. He didn't know, you know, this was gonna be hard. I don't know if I can do it. But instead, he repented quickly and God gave him grace. He made a strong commitment and God gave him the power to do it. And he chased down any idols that stood between him and the knowledge of God. So what about you? Let's go back to our original question. Do you have a tender heart? Do you remember when you did have a tender heart? Are you willing to get honest about your own sin? Really? Are you willing to take a strong stand on things? Are you willing to relentlessly pursue idols, high places, thoughts that elevate themselves above an almighty God? If you'll say yes, you just might be somebody that God will use to save an entire generation. The one in your home, the one in your school, the one in your community, the one in the world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your kingdom. I thank you for your word. I thank you for just the power that comes through you. God, I pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in these next few minutes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.